Hello, I'm William Law, and this is the Arab Digest podcast. We're delighted to bring you the podcast with no advertising and no sponsors. If you're enjoying our podcast and want to support analysis and commentary on the Middle East and North Africa that is truly independent, please consider a donation. You can find details on how to do so at ArabDigest.org. As we close out on another successful podcast year, I'm really pleased to welcome back Sami Hamdi, Editor-in-Chief of the International Interest and a regular podcast contributor. Hello, Sami. Hi, Bill. Thanks for having me again. Now, we are going to do a Middle East and North Africa year-ender, a big ask given all that's happened in 2022. But I figure the best way to proceed is to throw a series of snappy headlines at you. Are you ready? Ready. Let's do this. All right. February 24, Putin invades Ukraine and the Middle East and North Africa do a bit of fence-sitting. I think that this was uh, quite a watershed moment in terms of the relationship between the US and between the Middle East states, more particularly between the US administration and the Gulf states. You'll remember that the UAE abstained from condemning Russia initially in the United Nations Assembly. Uh, Turkey, Turkish President Erdogan uh, insisted on taking this third position in which he would not necessarily side with the US nor with Russia. And uh, he would later on, of course, go on to uh, broker this grain uh, deal uh, with uh, Russia. The point being is that for the Gulf region, it was one of the first times in that while we saw Washington try to depict the issue as one of A versus B, we saw a C position emerge from the Gulf states, not necessarily because they believed in a third position, but primarily because they quite frankly believed that the US interests no longer necessarily coincided with their interest and that there was this sort of attitude coming out of Washington that US interests take precedence, even if it is to the detriment of the Gulf interests. And this is why we saw this sort of very strange phenomenon in that for once, the collectively the region's powers all sort of came together and said, listen, the US is not a friend to any one of us. It's not supporting any one of us. Its interests are not aligned with any one of us. Let's all collectively stand with this third position. And they've done that very successfully uh, for the duration of the year, whether that's Saudi Arabia, whether that's UAE, whether that's even Qatar as well, uh, whether that's Turkey, whether that's Algeria, all of them very tentatively approaching the issue of Ukraine, trying to preserve relations with both Washington and Moscow in the belief that Moscow is not going anywhere an anywhere anytime soon. And Putin, even if he is defeated in Ukraine, will not necessarily be defeated in Russia. And the US, and, and to finish on this particular point, what's emboldened this position as well is the lack of options on the part of Washington, which we'll later discuss later with some of the other headlines. Okay. Headline number two, the great JCPOA stallout. What does it mean for the Middle East? I think that while everybody talks about the JCPOA in its technical terms, in terms of this idea of trying to restrict Iran's nuclear weapons, the general view in the region has always been that this deal is a Democrat-led initiative to recognize Iran's influence in the region. And this is more a reflection of Democrat sympathies towards Iran over those of the other Gulf uh, allies. The JCPOA, when it was originally signed, let's remember, uh, Obama did not uh, uh, impose any conditions regarding Iran's uh, proxies in Iraq or in Yemen or in Syria or in Lebanon. There was this idea that what was happening was this framework of cooperation was emerging between the US and between the Iranians. And as a result, this JCPOA was the mechanism through which this framework of cooperation uh, uh, could uh, uh, be established. And that's why Trump came in and blew it out of the water 
at the request of the Gulf allies. But the point here being is that the stalling is nothing new. I think that when it comes to the stalling of the JCPOA, I think the US is trying to extract maximum concessions from uh, Iran. And it, while the US uh, and Iran would both like to see a deal, I think that what's happening is that there is a lack of agreement in Washington itself and in Iran over how this deal should come about and how to engineer this deal in a way that makes both of them look like winners in, an, in a region where nobody actually wants this deal uh, to take place. At this moment in time, I mean, the headline at the time, of course, there was the stalling because uh, the, the Iranians weren't necessarily happy with uh, Biden's lack of guarantees that the US would uphold the deal in the event Biden lost. But certainly now what we're seeing is that with the protest in Iran that came later on after the headline, we're seeing the US uh, again stall, trying to see if the regime survives or not, and if the regime survives, and they will continue to try to pursue this deal. But I think that this is more, the JCPOA is not about Iran's nuclear weapons, as much as it is about a shifting in uh, the framework of cooperation between the US and the region, and to try to prioritize Iran over the other Gulf allies. Headline number three, MBZ, Mohammed bin Zayed, from de facto to de jure. I think Mohammed bin Zayed, I think the New York Times described him as the dark prince, which I thought was a bit harsh in terms of describing him as a dark uh, prince. I think that it's more accurate to describe him as the most shrewd operator in the Middle East today, being able to exert significant influence over policy in Washington, over policy in the EU, over uh, Saudi Arabia's policy, being able to position himself as indispensable uh, in Libya and the like, indispensable to the extent that uh, Erdogan himself felt uh, it's uh, necessary to uh, enter into a reconciliation with the UAE. UAE accepting that reconciliation is sort of an acknowledgement that while the two countries differ in terms of geographic size, certainly they are very much uh, almost equal in terms of their ability to exert influence uh, in the region. And this is why I think that when it comes to MBZ from de facto to de jure, nothing changes. He's been the de facto president for a long, long time. Uh, he becomes the president now, and I think that given that he's still relatively young for a uh, for a monarch, he doesn't have any of the issues that some of the other nations uh, have had before in terms of appointing a crown prince. He's firmly in control of the UAE, and the UAE remains arguably the most influential player in the region today. Next up, MBS and the great big push for the almighty tourist buck. You know, I know anecdotes are bad form, Bill, but but I'll tell you something very interesting. There, there, there is, a, you know, a very prominent, uh, um, you know, operator in the tourism industry based in the U.S. Uh, who, uh, you know, I was having a conversation with him and he's been consulted with regards to Saudi's development of some of the tourism and the like. And one thing that struck me was the disappointment amongst many of those who are working with uh, Saudi Arabia's uh, tourism in this idea that, and to put it in the words of this particular friend, that Saudi has a lot to offer in terms of its culture and tradition, but all I'm being asked is how to bring in European concepts and European uh, themes uh, to Saudi Arabia. And I don't necessarily believe this is how Saudi Arabia should be pushing forward. I do think that there is a rather a, a vague direction with regards to tourism. I think Bin Salman has an idea of how it should look like insofar as what it should produce in terms of revenues and the like. But I think there is a lack of vision as to what the Saudi identity should be, the Saudi identity that should be presented to tourists, given it has been so ingrained with Islam for centuries. And I think that this links directly to the de-Islamization policies that bin Salman has been pursuing. 
this idea that how do we create a nationalist Saudi identity that still incorporates what makes Saudi tradition so attractive? And I think until Bin Salman answers that question, we will continue to see this sort of flip-flapping with regards to tourism, uh, the, 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 the type of tourism that Bin Salman is seeking to attract. And, and until we see a clear definition of the Saudi identity that Bin Salman wants to create and what it means, uh, I think that we will continue to have this very vague trajectory in terms of the tourism industry, whereby if you ask any of the operators, no one has any idea how it's supposed to look like or what it's going to look like. Despite all the uh, hundreds of billions he's pumping into it. He's pumping hundreds and billions into it. And I think what's quite fascinating is that if you ask many of the contractors working for Saudi and you ask them, you know, what do you think of this particular vision? Very few will tell you that the vision itself is exciting. Rather, they will celebrate the opportunity that billions are being handed out to contractors to do a particular job. While many of these contractors have no interest whatsoever or belief that the, what, that, the, that the vision that is being presented will actually work in the end or not. It's still the same policy that we've seen with uh, operators working with, uh, with contractors working with Saudi. Show me the money, I'll do what you tell me to do, and I'll go back to Washington or go back to Europe. And I think this is why Bin Salman, albeit this was about a year ago or two years ago, this is why Bin Salman was very frustrated and demanded a change in the nature of the relationship by demanding companies set up offices in Saudi Arabia itself. Very few have set up uh, bases in Saudi Arabia, reflecting the nature of this relationship, which is if Saudi is going to throw billions at a particular vision, it doesn't matter what I think about this vision. It doesn't matter if I think it will succeed or not. Show me the money and I'll build a tunnel wherever you want, Bin Salman, on this land of yours and I'll go home after you pay me my check. Iran keeps right on backing Hezbollah and the Houthis. Headline number five. I think the Iranians are well aware that uh, Washington is keen on, on a deal, that Washington does not have the appetite to oust uh, these proxies from Iraq or from Yemen. We've seen on numerous occasions that when the internationally recognized government of Yemen has had the Houthis on the ropes in Hodeida or the like. We've seen the international community rush in and rescue the Houthis by insisting that everybody goes to the table uh, and come to an agreement. Despite the Houthis reneging on these agreements over and over, we still see the sympathy from the international community that is more inclined towards the preservation of Houthis as opposed to seeing them uh, essentially kicked out of Sana'a and uh, relegated back to Saada, where they emerged from to embark on their military campaign. Likewise, in Iraq, as we saw with the JCPOA in 2015, Obama uh, facilitated or helped to facilitate the legalizing or the incorporation of uh, Iran's proxies into the Iraqi army, effectively handing over the Iraqi army uh, to Iranian influence. Before then, Iranian influence was limited to the interior ministry. Obama managed to hand over the defense ministry as well uh, to the uh, Iranians. And now their proxies are the main force in Iraq today on the ground. And they use those forces to be able to subvert the latest election results. The point here being is that if you're sitting in Tehran, the reality is you know that Washington is keen on a deal with you. You know that they're not uh, inclined to exert resources to push you back. You know that Washington is reigning in the likes of Israel, Saudi Arabia, UAE, and their tendencies towards uh, confrontation uh, with uh, Iran. The reality is I think that Iranian influence is getting stronger and stronger. And I think that while people like to think that the protest in Iran will affect the proxies or the ability of the proxies to exert themselves, I think anyone following Lebanon, Syria, Iraq and Yemen will clearly see that, that the coalition or alliance 
of Saudi, US, UAE, uh, uh, and all these other countries versus Iran itself, Iran always seems to be coming out on top. Mm. Yeah, and in Lebanon, Hezbollah there? I think that when it comes to Hezbollah, I think they've had a bit of a difficult uh, year. I think that the, the, the reality is the country is spiraling uh, into a disaster. And I think that Hezbollah, while it's traditionally focused on the territories where it is present or focused on the south of Lebanon, where its influence is widespread, I think they're also beginning to feel the pinch as well. And I think that was reflected in the way that they took a PR hit, in the way that uh, they seem to give their blessing to this uh, border agreement between Israel and between Lebanon on the sea. I do think that Hezbollah at the moment is playing a game of damage limitation amidst, amidst a lot of popular uh, discontent. Lebanon doesn't look like it has a lifeline at the moment. Nobody is sure how to get out of this crisis. And while Hezbollah has traditionally tried to keep itself insulated by focusing only on its base, there is a lot of discontent emerging in its base itself. And this is why we see that now uh, uh, Hezbollah's lifeline at the moment is this potential reconciliation between Assad, Turkey, Russia uh, and the like that might open a window in which Hezbollah will be able to access further resources by which to cement itself while its allies burn. Headline number six, murder of a journalist, the killing of Shireen Abu Akleh. I think the killing of uh, the journalist Shireen Abu Akleh had, you know, such significant dynamics primarily because one she was an American citizen two she wasn't even Muslim she was a Christian uh, and three the reaction of Washington was one in which it, it sort of just shrugged its shoulders the US ambassador to Israel came out with a tweet in which he accept uh, in which he expressed his sadness and this tweet came one week after Ned Price the White House spokesman had expressed his horror look at the difference between the two words at Russia killing a journalist uh, in uh, Ukraine. I think that when it comes to Shireen Abu Akleh, I think uh, Anthony Blinken's uh, tweets in which he would uh, express his concern over the death of Shireen Abu Akleh and then in the same tweet say that our support for Israel remains ironclad, it was sort of a schizophrenic approach. And I think that when it comes to Shireen Abu Akleh, it was a tragedy for journalism, not just for uh, the region itself, because it demonstrated that if you are a journalist covering an issue that Washington is has a particular position on, it doesn't matter if you have an American passport or not. Washington will pull the carpet out from underneath you and essentially deal as if you were never a citizen in the first place. And I think this has significant ramifications for the nature of, for the, for the changing tides in the world in terms of the safety of journalists, many of whom uh, depend on uh, the protection of Washington and the protection of some of these Western governments. I think that Shireen Abu Akhla's uh, death uh, essentially has caused a lot of jitters in the journalist world and I think the reality is that it only emphasized this reality that the US is no longer the main power in the world it's no longer this noble um, upholder of this global order of freedom, justice and uh, and democracy I think that with the US abandoning the case of Shireen Abu Akhla I think it became abundantly clear now that we are in a multipolar world uh, and that many in the region or many in the world now are going to be looking elsewhere. I won't say necessarily China and Russia, but certainly the, the same attention that the US was able to command once, it won't be able to command again. Headline number seven, Bibi back with the most extreme government in Israel's history. I think what's quite fascinating about the Israeli electorate is that they always seem to have a tendency to lean towards the right wing. They always have a tendency to deliver 
the right-wing population to power. On the one hand, they argue that they want peace in the region. On the one hand, they argue uh, that they are this bastion of democracy in the region. And at the same time, they continue to elect right-wing governments that are averse to any peace, averse to any negotiations, averse to any dialogue. Netanyahu keeps arguing that he's a necessity because the Palestinians want to eliminate Israel. But the reality is that's a very right-wing interpretation of what the Palestinians want. The Palestinians want justice. They want to live in one state with the Jewish population and they want a democracy. And the reason Netanyahu doesn't like to talk in those terms is because he's well aware that if there is a democracy in Israel that includes the Palestinians, Palestinians are the majority and they democratically come to uh, rule the country and they democratically achieve their justice. So in other words, the continuing election of a right-wing government is essentially the Israeli electorate saying we don't want a democracy that includes anyone else or any minorities or any other ethnic groups aside from those who look just like us. And that's why that many people use the term fascism to describe what the Israeli government represents. And this is why many people are bewildered by the U.S.'s continuing support uh, for this Israeli government. So I'm not necessarily surprised that Netanyahu is back in power. I think it perfectly reflects what Israel represents, which is this domination, this colonization uh, of a land and and an identity of a state that does not include anybody except those who look like Netanyahu because democracy would mean justice, democracy would mean fairness, and Netanyahu knows that if he implements either of those then the Palestinians and the Jewish population would live together in one nation, but it would be the Palestinians who are democratically in control. So I'm not necessarily surprised they had Bennett, and now they're back to Bibi, and I think we're back to the status quo as it's always been. Headline number eight. Erdogan builds Middle East and North Africa bridges in an election year. I think that's a fascinating headline. I don't think Erdogan is necessarily building bridges. I think he's scrambling in order to try to find some sort of reprieve from the economic crisis that his country is uh, is suffering. I do think that it was Erdogan who reached out to bin Salman. It was Erdogan who reached out to bin Zayed. It's Erdogan who's been reaching out to Sisi. All of them have been imposing uh, conditions uh, for that reconciliation. Erdogan agreed to bin Salman's uh, condition of never talking about Khashoggi again and throwing out the case. Erdogan ordered the case to be thrown out of Istanbul courts before he's made made his way to Riyadh. And bin Salman was very keen to broadcast those pictures of Erdogan in Riyadh and embracing Mohammed bin Salman. Abdul Khaliq Abdullah, the UAE commentator, when Erdogan and the UAE reconciled, said and put it quite bluntly on, on Twitter that uh, I can hear the wailing of those that their sultan has pulled the carpet from underneath them, i.e. from the UAE perspective, the condition was that Erdogan would pull the carpet out from under his allies, or rather that Erdogan would impose restrictions on his allies, and that would be the exchange for reconciliation with the UAE. And we saw subsequently restrictions being imposed on the Egyptian opposition in Istanbul, and even generally a change in in the tune of the media towards the UAE and indeed uh, to some extent towards uh, Egypt and and, and to a greater extent towards uh, Saudi Arabia. And I think that uh, Erdogan has been pushing for greater business ties and and the like. The UAE asked for Bayraktar drones. Uh, There was a three-year wait, but the UAE offered two billion. So there's talk that Erdogan ordered the acceleration of this order so that instead of 100 Bayraktars, 20 Bayraktars at least would be delivered to the UAE in order to be able to secure that two billion. Uh, Saudi Arabia's Mohammed bin Salman 
uh, has been has started to put money into uh, Turkey in order to, um, you know, give enough to Erdogan to suggest that there is a friendship uh, blooming, but not enough that it actually bails him out economically. Uh, and so I think that this series of reconciliations or bridges that we're seeing, I don't think, I, I still think that they are on tetchy uh, pillars. They're not necessarily on firm foundations, but there is one more dynamic, Bill, if, if, if you will allow me with, with regards to this particular headline, which is that it's important to know that there is a thriving relationship now between Saudi Arabia and Qatar, and it's a relationship that the UAE is not necessarily happy with. And this is why we see that of Saudi Arabia, UAE and Egypt, UAE appears the most eager to invest in this relationship with Erdogan, almost as if the UAE believes that it can supplant Qatar in this exclusivity of relationship between Erdogan and Qatar. UAE believes it can become the prime partner of Turkey in the event bin Salman decides uh, to elevate Qatar over the UAE. While none of these situations is necessarily likely in the short term, it certainly reflects or it's certainly good to be aware that uh, shifts and trends can change rapidly in the region. Indeed they can, Sami, and in ways that the West is perhaps not fully appreciating. Headline number nine. Macron, Johnson, Biden to the Saudis. Please, pretty please, raise production. MBS says, no. He says, la, la, la. I think that this was quite fascinating. I think, of course, Macron was the first Western leader, I think, to visit Riyadh and to go to Bin Salman and essentially say to Bin Salman, please, can you help us out with regards to energy prices and the like? I think for Bin Salman, the visits of Macron and Johnson were not as uh, relevant as Biden's visit. What Bin Salman wanted was a public display of regret and a public display of repentance from Biden that he could then broadcast to the world and say, look, I'm no longer a pariah, I was wronged, and even the US now is now rehabilitating me. I think that when Biden went uh, to, uh, to Jeddah, to Saudi Arabia, the expectation was from the Saudi side that Biden would put an end to this Khashoggi issue, that it would be a reset of ties. And there were even rumors that bin Salman was prepared to increase production in order to bring down the oil price. But when journalists shouted at Biden, and, and, and the video is out there for anybody who wants to search it, when Biden was sitting with uh, bin Salman and the journalists were shouting, what about Khashoggi? And then Biden remarked in Jeddah saying that I brought up the issue with bin Salman and I made clear who I thought was responsible for it, that evoked the wrath of Saudi Arabia. And I think at that point, if Saudi Arabia had any intention of increasing oil production, they certainly were not going to do it. And I think Saudi anger was such that when they decided to cut production before the midterm elections, I think it caused panic even amongst Saudi allies such as the UAE. And the UAE leaked to the Wall Street Journal that they had pleaded with Saudi Arabia or they had asked Saudi Arabia not to cut production uh, in that month, but to wait another month so that it doesn't affect the midterm elections. Almost as if the UAE were trying to say to the US, listen, we had nothing to do with this. We, we don't want, yes, we have our tensions with Washington, but what bin Salman is doing is overboard. And I think that when it comes to bin Salman, I think the reality is that when Erdogan gave him his concession and threw out Khashoggi, bin Salman reconciled. Bin Salman's sole condition to Biden was, I want immunity from the Khashoggi case and I want you never to talk about it again. Biden dragged his heels on both to the extent that bin Salman panicked and appointed himself prime minister in a bid to get the judge, Judge Bates, to declare that he has uh, immunity. And Biden relented after he saw that 
after he saw his struggles in the midterm elections, I know many people are saying the red wave didn't emerge, but that wasn't the point of what bin Salman was trying to achieve. Bin Salman was trying to achieve uh, a lame duck president. He was trying to get uh, Biden to lose control of Congress. I think that Biden relented, offered him immunity. Uh, and I think that for bin Salman, this has been a stellar year for him uh, as a result of these oil prices. Whether the situation will continue next year remains to be seen, but certainly bin Salman has successfully strong-armed Europe and the US into at least dealing with him in a manner that certainly does not resemble anything like a pariah. Headline number 10, a World Cup like no other. Controversy meets the magic of football. I think, Bill, this is a this is rather a bit more complicated than, and I don't know how much I should say in this podcast, um, but I, I think first and foremost, look, I think that while, yes, the headlines with regards to Qatar were certainly driven, had very racist, Islamophobic undertones. I do think that, you know, there was this sort of aversion towards the Arab nature of the World Cup. I think there was this antagonism towards Qatar in the World Cup. Uh, I, I know that I'm stalling with the words, but I'm trying to find the best way within which to deliver the point, which is that if we're looking at it politically, which is what the podcast t tends to be about, if Qatar's aim was to spend 260 billion to improve its image in the Western capitals, then I think that it failed miserably. And I think that the reality is that it rather made things worse by putting itself into the spotlight. Some have highlighted that Qatar has made waves and inroads with Latin America, with Asia and the Arab world and the like. But Qatar was never unpopular in these areas in the first place. And I don't think that's that was the intention of Qatar. I think Qatar was primarily trying to present itself as this big major player to Washington and Europe, particularly at a time in which it's been wrestling with the UAE and it's seen its influence decline in these uh, particular uh, continents. And I think from this regard, there will be certain uh, regret on the part of some of the Qatari officials. I, I do think also with regards to the issue of human rights and the like, and this is where I hesitate, uh, you know, should I say it, should I not? But, but I think that it's important to stress that, look, I think that people focused on the wrong issues when it came to human rights with Qatar. With LGBT, the, the, the reality is that the region as a whole, given it's an, a region where Islam is the main religion, I think that they were always going to be averse to that. But that's not the issue that many people take with Qatar with regards to human rights in the Arab world itself. The human rights that they uh, take uh, issue with is such as when Qatar introduced the, the election for their parliament, they introduced an election law that stripped many Qataris of the right to vote. And when uh, Hazza' bin Ali, one, a lawyer who had his right to vote stripped from him under this uh, election law that was designed to ensure that the parliament would not be strong enough to actually challenge the emir's power or emir's decisions, now, Hazza bin Ali was thrown into prison. His house was raided by 100 armed guards. He was thrown into prison. The emir came out with a speech saying that I reject this tribalism. And then uh, the Hazza bin Ali has been sentenced to life in prison for protesting the arbitrary law that stripped him of his right to vote. I think when we talk about human rights issues, it's these issues that should have been the focus of much of what was taking place in Qatar if they were truly sincere about human rights. And I know I'm going, now going to be in a lot of trouble for having given that particular example. But the point being is that uh, I, I think that overall, when you look at the World Cup, I do think that if you're asking what is the tangible gain that Qatar made, what, what, what gains did it actually make in terms of the aims that it wanted to achieve, I don't think it made much gains at all. I think rather it exposed certainly the Islamophobic and racist tendencies of Western media, but that was never a secret to anybody. 
if uh, Qatar did not make any inroads and now they have the Qatar gate scandal in Europe, it didn't make inroads in Washington, it didn't make inroads in Europe, and I don't think Qatar is necessarily interested in the inroads that it made in Africa and Asia. So I think from this perspective, certainly, uh, it was a failure on the part of Qatar, but it was a sweeping success in terms of affirming that the people are against normalization of ties with Israel, that there is this common identity in the rest of the world, that there is another part of the world that exists aside from Europe and the US, that there is agency for Asia, there is agency for Africa, there is agency for Latin America. The World Cup was a good reminder that these continents exist, that these continents have their cultures, that they have their languages, they have their way of life, and it was a good reminder for Europe and the US, often who, pursue, who, who view the world from a Eurocentric perspective, that the world is bigger than five, as Erdogan once put it. Mm, okay, and the football was uh, was pretty darn good. You'll you'll give me that. The football was amazing. I think that in terms of footballing wise, it was one of the best tournaments ever held. All right, headline number eleven. With less than nine percent turnout, Tunisians turned their back on Kaiseyed. That's the parliamentary elections that uh, just happened on the seventeenth of December. I think it's important to put these elections into context. Qais Saeed suspended the constitution last year. He suspended parliament. He announced he would rule the country by decree. He then dragged his opponents before military courts. He then wrote his own election law, then wrote his own constitution, then held a referendum on his own constitution, which had a low turnout. Macron recognized it, so he was happy about that. And then he did these elections. The reason I mention uh, what happened before is to give the context that for Qais Saeed, these elections were never about the Tunisian people and it's irrelevant for Qais Saeed what the Tunisian people actually think about these elections. These elections were orchestrated entirely to offer an avenue for the international community to recognize his coup. It was about trying to provide a, a, an avenue through which Washington and the EU could point to something and say, yes, now the legitimacy of the parliament that was suspended is finished and there is a new legitimacy for a new parliament and therefore Qaisai is expecting that in the statements to come there will no longer be any mention of a return to a democratic transition or a restoration of parliament. And I think the reality is that despite the low turnout and the low turnout being as a result of Tunisians being well aware uh, that that these elections would have no impact whatsoever and that these elections were not for Tunisians anyway, I think that Qaisai did achieve much of what he set out to achieve with regards to international recognition. The statement that came out from the White House that Ned Price issued uh, welcomed the elections and declared it a step towards a democratic transition. In other words, they acknowledged these elections despite its low turnout, despite the ban on political parties, despite the ban on opposition parties from participating. Washington recognized the show of these elections just as it recognized Sisi's elections in 2014. So if the aim of the elections was to secure international recognition, Said now has the international recognition of Washington for, for his measures. He has the re international recognition of Macron, Macron who's been lobbying the EU not to be antagonistic towards him. And Said will hope that with Washington's statement, the UAE and Saudi Arabia and other countries that have been hesitant to invest in his coup, they will start investing now because Washington is making clear that it's not interested in democratic transition. It's interested in working with the status quo and the reality. And the status quo is Said is dominant. So Washington appears to have given Said what he wanted in terms of recognition, at least of the first stage of his show in which to create this new legitimacy for himself that he hopes the international, international community will continue to recognize. Another nail in the coffin of Tunisian democracy. Headline number 12. 
another bad, very bad year for human rights in the Middle East and North Africa. I think every year, at the end of every year, we always say the statement, it's another bad year for human rights. It's a, it's a worse year for human rights. Uh, I think that I think at some point we have to come to this reality or accept this reality that human rights is not a priority for any of the players who are involved in the Middle East, whether that's the US or Europe or even the Middle East players uh, themselves. I don't think human rights is a particular issue. And I think in particular, there was a body blow to human rights following the issue of uh, the killing of uh, or the murder of Shirin Abu Akhla. And I think the reality is that with these reconciliations that are taking place, with Biden now pleading with the Gulf states for a reset in relations, I think it's becoming abundantly clear for these regimes in the region that the human rights, there will not be accountability for it. There will not be accountability for any abuses, that they have license to do what they want, because what matters is oil price, what matters is midterm elections, what matters is the gas price at the pump in, in, the, in, in the U.S., what matters is petrol prices in the UK, with Rishi Sunak, of course, trying to improve his ties with these regimes. Uh, oil is what matters. And human rights is a luxury that, in reality, does not really impact elections either. If you ask the US citizen in the midterm elections that the reason uh, bin Salman is uh, cutting production to bring oil prices up is because Biden is insisting on accountability for Khashoggi, for the U.S. voter, the U.S. said that that's, that's not my problem. It's not my issue if uh, bin Salman murdered Khashoggi and Biden wants to hold him to account. All I care about is the price in the pump and, un and, and, and employment uh, and my standard of living. The rest of the world is not my problem. And I think that this is the reality that essentially underpins the impunity within which the, uh, the, the, the regimes continue their human rights abuses. The idea that for, the, for people, not just regimes, people themselves... Human rights is something talked about when times are good, but something discarded when times are bad. And I think that's reflective of the world that we live in today, or the way the world is certainly emerging, in which might is right, in which Putin has invaded Ukraine, in which now everybody is deploying force in order to impose themselves, instead of going through international procedures that at least the Charter of the United Nations promised would be the main method through which to resolve our disputes. All right. Finally, Sami. The big one. Your predictions for 2023. I think that's very, uh, to be honest, um, I saw a meme or a joke on social media where somebody said, before I start 2023, can I see the terms and conditions first? So the, the, the idea being that, you know, 2022 and 2021 have been very terrible years, 2020, uh, 2019, COVID and the like. It, we seem to be going from disaster to disaster and I don't see that changing anytime soon. I think now, that these reconciliations that are taking place are reconciliations to establish a status quo of authoritarianism uh, in the region. It's a reconciliation to respect the authoritarianism of one another and not to necessarily get involved uh, in the authoritarianism or crackdowns that each country imposes on their people. Uh, I do think that what will be very interesting to watch in the next year is the relationship between the regional powers, particularly Saudi, UAE and Qatar and Turkey, primarily because we're seeing Qatar and the UAE continue to wrestle with one another and continue to try to influence the larger powers in order to be able to really accentuate the projection of their own power. We've seen Qatar really try to win over Mohammed bin Salman to drive a wedge between bin Salman and the UAE. And we've seen the UAE really try to get close to Turkey in order to drive a wedge between Turkey and Qatar in order to try 
to essentially cut off one of Qatar's limbs. So each one is trying to cut the limbs off each other, while at the same time lobbying Washington in order to try to be the dominant influential power there. I think it would be very interesting to see how these rifts manifest themselves in public. Bin Zayed did not go to the World Cup opening ceremony. Bin Zayed did not go to Riyadh uh, to meet Xi Jinping when he, went to, when he came to visit uh, Saudi Arabia. And that's a clear indication that the UAE is not necessarily on board with bin Salman's policies. But Qatar's Emir Tamim did go. So Qatar's Emir Tamim believed there's no point offending uh, bin Salman. Let's take this opportunity given the UAE are not there. So the idea being that these rifts are becoming increasingly public. Vahi Khalfan, the former chief of Dubai police, somebody considered close to the policy making circles, tweeted that when a donkey wrongs you, do not respond in the manner of the donkey. And people interpreted it in one of two ways. Either Biden is the donkey who offended bin Salman, and bin Salman is responding like a donkey in inviting Xi Jinping, or bin Salman, the donkey, has offended bin Zayed, and bin Zayed is choosing not to respond like a donkey to bin Salman. But the point is that the public rifts are becoming more public, more pronounced, and I think 2023 will be the year in which we, we see to what extent these rifts actually cause a fissure in the established uh, relationships that have dominated and underpinned the status quo of the region over the past 10 years. Okay, well, that is a, a very, very interesting uh, look ahead to 2023. And uh, I, I'm going to have you back to, uh, to explore just how those fissures and cracks develop. But in the meantime, Sami, I want to wish you and your family the very best in the season, over the season's holidays. And to thank you very much for coming in. Thank you for having me, Bill. Appreciate it. You've been listening to the Arab Digest podcast. My guest today was Sami Hamdi, Editor-in-Chief of the International Interest. Now, I know this was our year-ender, but the podcast isn't quite finished. Next week, we feature the Editor's Choice for 2022, and this year, it's Lina Al-Hathlul's powerful podcast, Testament of Courage. Since we launched our podcast in 2020, it's been listened to more than 110,000 times in countries right around the world. So a big thanks to all our listeners. And if you're a first-timer, check out our podcast library on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, or Amazon. We're happy to bring you the podcast with no advertising and no sponsors. If you are enjoying our podcast and want to support analysis and commentary on the Middle East and North Africa that is truly independent, please do consider a donation. Details on how to do so at ArabDigest.org. When you go to our website... You can also find out about our daily newsletter and how to get a free trial. Check us out on ArabDigest.org and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. To all our listeners and Arab Digest members, a big thank you, and we wish you the very best in the holiday season. I'm William Law, editor of the Arab Digest, essential reading from independent sources. <laughs>